Well, on this wonderful Easter morning, Resurrection Sunday morning, highlight of the year, once more let's greet each other with the words, Christ is risen. And so he is. You know, around the world, and especially I know in Europe, uh, that greeting uh, is echoed back and forth. And in fact, when I used to have the privilege of being over in Russia to teach in the Bible school there, uh, we, uh, uh, they would continue to say that all the way through the month and on into the next month. They never got tired of, of uh, uh, saying to each other, Christos was Christ. And then the response, Weistene was Christ. And in Germany, the Herr ist auferstanden. Er ist wahrhaftig auferstanden. Those greetings just simply echoed in the halls of the churches uh, for weeks and months over in Europe. I think they get more excited about the resurrection than we do here in uh, Canada. We're so polite and we're so, you know, the only time we ever raise our voices is in the sports field. Uh, we seldom do that in church with that same kind of enthusiasm. Well, last week we looked at uh, uh, and celebrated Palm Sunday. Our focus was on the events which ushered in what we call Holy Week, uh, the week that literally changed the world. And then we celebrated Good Friday. And on Good Friday, uh, Pastor Grant helped us to understand why did Jesus have to die, not just from the standpoint of Caiaphas, uh, the high priest, but from the standpoint of God, because it was absolutely essential. But during that entire week, which, which started with the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, Jesus riding in on a donkey in a, in, in a, a point of humiliation before uh, his subjects, not as the king in, uh, on a high uh, energy kind of uh, war horse, but rather on a donkey in all humility. Uh, but that ushered in a week that was uh, full of events, and especially the last 12 hours, which were horrific uh, in uh, uh, their total summation, and it so graphically depicted in Mel Gibson's film, The Passion of the Christ. I don't know how many of you have ever seen that film, The Passion of the Christ. Thank you. Because if you've seen that film, you can never, ever get those images out of your mind. When I think about Christ's suffering, it isn't just uh, uh, something that is uh, fictitious. It was real, the, the, the physical, the, the emotional, the spiritual struggle he went through. And, and very quickly, some of the things that happened during this time, the in intense spiritual struggle that he had in Gethsemane, when he recognized in prayer before his heavenly Father that there was no other way. Father, if it be possible, he said, let this cup pass from me. He knew what was lying before him. He knew what to anticipate. And he would like to have, from a human point of view, avoided all that pain and suffering, especially the alienation between himself and his heavenly Father. There had never, ever been tension between God Father, God Son, and the Holy Spirit. And when the sin of the world was placed upon Jesus on that cross, it was then that Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? Because God is too holy to behold sin. And he could not look at his own son 
when he hung there representing the sin of the whole world, your sin and my sin, placed upon his son. And of course, that intense spiritual struggle was followed by his betrayal, his arrest in the garden. Uh, One of his own had gone to sell him off for 30 pieces of silver, Uh, the unfair trial process, and there were six phases to it. He was shuttled back and forth between uh, the uh, Roman governor and and his power and and the power of the Sanhedrin, as as Pastor Grant explained so so well last uh, uh, Friday morning. uh, The Sanhedrin had authority to rule as the Jewish rulers over the nation but they did not have power to condemn anyone to death. That's why they had to shuttle him back and forth. And Pilate, who eventually washed his hands of the whole episode because he could not not find any fault in this man, and yet he gave in to the pressure of the Jewish leaders to crucify this man for whatever religious things he may have done wrong as far as Pilate was concerned. Even Pilate's wife got involved in the act and said, have nothing to do with this, with this good man. And so he washed his hands ceremoniously, said, it's not on my, his blood is not on my hands. And then, of course, his ascent, the arduous road, road to Golgotha, carrying his, dragging his own cross on which he would be crucified, the extreme torture, the whipping, uh, the, the beatings, before he was even crucified, and then that spiritual agony that he had anticipated in the Garden of Gethsemane when the sin of the world was placed upon him. And those seven last words on the cross, showing the inner deep emotional stress and struggle, and then ultimately the agonizing, slow death of suffocation. Because really, it wasn't the blood flowing that was uh, what killed him. It was the fact that eventually his muscles got tired and his head simply sagged to the point where he could no longer draw breath. Many have speculated that the real reason Jesus died on the cross was from a broken heart over the sins of the people who were God's creation who should have known better, but who chose to disobey God. Our sin, simply our disobedience to God, our wanting to be independent of God's rule in our lives, is what nailed Jesus to that cross. Now much of that mega story was captured in what we now call the Apostles' Creed. Uh, which is a summary of of our Christian faith. And some believe that this creed may actually date all the way back to the apostles, although in its present form, it probably dates only back to about uh, the year 700 AD. So it'll be on the screen behind me. Let's read it together. Hopefully you can read it well enough. Uh, Those of you who have the notes, it's also in your notes. And this is the apostles' creed that most of Christendom around the world still proclaims till this day. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, 
dead and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now I know as Baptists we're not used to reciting creeds like this, uh, but it has been a centerpiece of Christianity down through the centuries. Most denominations will rehearse the story of God's intervention in our human affairs uh, of a lost humanity and a Savior who was willing to be nailed to the cross, die, be buried, and rise again on the third day. Now, admittedly, the language is a little bit archaic, and uh, there are some words here that might require some explanation. When it says here that he, uh, the term, that he descended into hell, this is not the place of punishment. Uh, This is not even the the notion of purgatory, a place where you have to kind of suffer it out until you've paid for things. Uh, Rather, the word here should more properly be the word Hades, which was really the ancient concept of the place of the dead. It just simply meant the grave. He he was not only placed into that tomb that was hewn into the rock, but but he actually uh, died because Hades simply means he really died. This was not just uh, a passing out and then coming back to life again because he recovered, but he literally died. Now, all kinds of speculations were based on this uh, Apostles' Creed because uh, people said, well, what did he do in hell? What did he do in Hades? Did he preach to the lost people who had lived before Jesus actually taught the good news of the gospel? Uh, That is all speculation. We have nothing in Scripture that tells us that. Uh, And so, uh, really, the statement simply affirms Jesus really died. And and there's there's another word that probably we have a hard time when it says that he comes to judge the quick and the dead. Uh, Quick, not in the sense of being speedy, but in the sense alive. Those who are alive and dead, because the final judgment is Christ's. He is our Savior now. He will ultimately be the judge of the whole world. And those whose sins are not forgiven through his death on the cross, those who reject the offer of salvation, will find themselves in judgment, like it or not. And it is then, as the Apostle Paul pointed out so eloquently in his letter to the Philippians, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that he is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. It will not be a matter of choice at that point. They will have to acknowledge it. But you know what, friends? We can acknowledge it willingly now and be ahead of the game because that way our sins will be forgiven. So let's pick up the story now in in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28, that was so beautifully read by Gerd, which is really an eyewitness account of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Uh, This account is at the very heart of our faith. Uh, It's the good news of new life in Christ. And uh, without question, 
the main theme, the central theme of the early church was the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That's what they kept telling about. That's what they were excited about. That's what they were willing to risk their lives for because they were persecuted for their faith. But this gave them hope because they knew beyond the grave there is a resurrection. There is new life in Christ. So here's the eyewitness account, verses 1 to 5. Matthew uh, really relates what transpired early that morning on the first resurrection day. I don't know how early you were up this morning. I was up at 6 o'clock, and some of you probably as well, or even earlier. And uh, uh, this is what happened. Early in the morning, after the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, this, is, this would be for us Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. So these dedicated, faithful women, uh, they, they had to stay away from the tomb over Passover, over the Sabbath, because they needed to keep themselves pure for the religious ceremonies. But now, as soon as that was over, they rushed out there. Now, why did they go? We don't know exactly. Uh, did they come simply to, compl- uh, to complete the embalming, which may not have been fully completed when Joseph of Arimathea laid Jesus' body into the grave? Or did they come because they wanted to simply be near his grave and mourn his passing? Maybe it's a little bit of both, but at any rate, these two faithful women modeled for us faithfulness and dedication to the Lord even when he seemingly was no no longer available because he now was dead. They did not fully understand the implications of what they would find and experience. And even as they're on their way, it seems like this is almost simultaneous. They're, They're moving out to the grave, prepared to do some embalming, to do whatever they needed to do as as an act of love to the body of their Lord, there's a demonstration of divine power. There was a violent earthquake. An angel of the Lord came down from heaven, going to the tomb, rolled back the stone, sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow, and the guards were so afraid. These are soldiers, Roman soldiers, tough guys. They were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. They passed out from the excitement, from the fear, from, from this horrible experience that they... What, so what is happening here? A natural, supernatural phenomenon. And we might ask ourselves the question, was, was the stone rolled away to let Jesus out? Or was the stone rolled away by the angel so that people could get in and see that he was no longer there, that he, in fact, was risen from the dead? Whichever way, Billy Graham Uh, responding to the words of the angels in verses 5 and 6, when the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Billy Graham once said that this is the most important statement ever made. He is not here. He has risen just as he said. Because that is true of no one else in the entire history of humankind. And our eternal salvation depends on the truth of that statement. And so someone else has, in fact, said that the resurrection 
the raising of Jesus on resurrection morning was God's amen to Christ. It is finished on the cross. In fact, when he said it is finished, he probably had to do it with an exhausted voice. It is finished! Because he was suffocating to death and commended his spirit into the hands of the Father. Now, what is the appropriate response to this good news of the resurrection? What should we be doing? For the women who had come to the grave, the first ones to be on the scene to see what is happening, uh, what they heard from the angels was, come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples. And you know what? This message of come and see, experience for yourself, and then go tell, is at the very heart of the Great Commission. It has been repeated again and again. In fact, if you read through those ten verses again, you will recognize just how often, how central that message of come and see. Convince yourself of the facts, of the truth, and then go and tell how much that is part of the story. He has risen from the dead. He is going ahead into, into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. That's verses 6 to 7. And so the good news they heard required an appropriate response, an immediate response on their part. Don't just stand around here. Go back. Tell his disciples the truth of what has happened because they don't know. They're, they're still mourning. They're still shocked from what happened over the weekend. So the good news that Jesus is alive requires immediate response. And for the disciples, as soon as they heard the message in verses uh, 6 to 7, go quickly and tell them, and then tell them that he is risen from the dead, he's going ahead uh, of you into Galilee, there you will see him. Now I have told you the implication was that Jesus was arranging a rendezvous a gathering with his disciples in a familiar place in Galilee. They'd been on that hillside many times before, and so he didn't have to specify exactly which hill it would be, but go there to that familiar place, and there you will meet Jesus again. They too would have to choose. Will we respond, or will we just simply say, these women are you know, too emotional, uh, we can't believe their, their witness, uh, and write it, write it off? No, they they did not, because we know that if you finish the rest of the chapter, that's when the Great Commission took place. That's when Jesus charged his disciples what they needed to do with the rest of their lives, now that they knew the truth about the cross and about the resurrection. So the implications are there, and they too would have to choose to either obey or disobey. And you know what? For us as modern and postmodern disciples of Jesus... It's the same truth. It's identical. The women needed to respond. The disciples needed to respond. We need to respond because come and see and then go and tell invites all of us to make sure of our salvation and then to share that same truth with whomever God may choose to place in our path. It is simply a matter of obedience to the clear call and commission of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The truth about his death, his burial, his resurrection 
demands a similar choice from all of us, even this morning. And if you've never come to the place where you've invited Christ into your life, if you've never come to the place where you have understood that without Christ, no matter how economically well off you are, no matter how intelligent you are, no matter how wonderful and beautiful a person you may be, because I have met many, many people who are not believers in Jesus, who are sometimes much nicer than some people that I know who are believers. Because, you see, even though all of us should be driven by the love of Christ, our human nature often gets in the way, doesn't it? And so we have selfish ideas, we have ambitions, we have clashes with even within the body of Christ at times. But none of those outward drappings matter when you stand before the final judgment seat of Jesus. All that really matters. What did you do with Jesus? What did you do with the gospel truth? Did you receive it and embrace it? Did you follow it? Did you obey it? Or did you reject it? And so the come, see, and the go, tell are still part of the Great Commission. And uh, as such, they are our personal responsibility. So there's a divine confirmation of the resurrection of Jesus in in verses 8 and 10, because like the faithful women and the early disciples, we can expect that our obedience to the call of Christ will not go unnoticed. Uh, Notice here in in, in verse 8 the mixture of fear and joy. It, It was a mixed bag that morning. We talk about the joy of resurrection because we know the whole story, but they only experienced it step by step, bit by bit. And so, so the women hurried away. Uh, if they were in a hurry before, I can imagine that the words that they had experienced uh, you know, sped up their, their steps even more. They hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy. Have you ever had that kind of a mixed feeling where well, you're not sure whether you should be shouting hallelujah, oh, weigh me, <laughs> oh, me. Uh, they, 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 they were, you know, totally ambivalent in their feelings, afraid yet filled with joy, and they ran to tell his disciples. Mixed emotions should not surprise us, because so often when God calls us to do something, we don't always have the full picture. Uh, whenever, uh, I'm thinking of it right now as a congregation, we have called a new senior pastor because the majority of the congregation felt this is God's man for us at this point. But there probably is a bit of apprehension because we don't know how is it going to work out. Will he really fit in? You know what? He has accepted, he has resigned his present position and accepted our invitation. And undoubtedly, he will have the same mixed feelings. There's a sense in which excitement for something new, for a new chapter in the life of our congregation and a new uh, opportunity for us to move forward together and perhaps revision what do we believe God wants us to be doing. But there's also the apprehension, how will I fit in? And and so you need to be praying for him and we need to be praying for ourselves as we move forward together because mixed emotions... um, are not unusual for for believers. There's, on the one hand, apprehension and fear about the unknown, and yet 
a, a deep sense of joy and release when you know that you're at peace with God but because you've been obedient to what he has asked you to do. These women simply demonstrated their full obedience without having a full understanding of all the details. And, and, and we might call this walking, in, in, in case of, of their situation, running by faith because they trusted what they had heard. And then they have a startling, a totally unexpected encounter. Suddenly Jesus met them. They hadn't counted on that. They hadn't even processed the full truth yet. And he says to them, greetings. Now I'm interested in the translation we had this morning, good morning. Uh, more likely he said, shalom, uh, peace. Uh, in some translations uh, it says hail, which was another greeting, simply acknowledging someone else's presence in this way. And they came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him because they immediately recognized him. Which is interesting because later on in the gospel story, we have the two disciples uh, who are walking uh, from Jerusalem to Emmaus, and he walks with them for quite a while and talks with them and they don't recognize him. It seems like their eyes are simply blurry from all the crying they've done, or, or else they just simply do not recognize. And it isn't until after, in the evening, when he breaks the bread and, and, and gives it to them and gives thanks, a gesture that they had seen Jesus do so many times that they recognized him, and that's when he disappeared. And then they said, did not our hearts burn while he spoke with us on the way? You see, in hindsight, they recognized. These women were a lot more astute. They recognized him immediately. They, through their tears, through their excitement, they saw it was Jesus, and they just wanted to worship him in humble adoration. Are, are you surprised by the unexpected encounter of Jesus for these two women? I'm not. Because wherever we go in Jesus' name, whatever we do in his name, he is there with us. Now, we don't have the benefit of seeing him physically with our own eyes as they did. But so often when we have launched out in, in a step of faith on behalf of God, when we've put everything on the line because we believe this is what God wants us to do, even though it may be hard, it may be difficult, there is that sense of his presence, that peace that comes with it. And uh, uh, the assurance in our hearts Never will I leave you nor forsake you. This is what he promised his disciples. He has never, ever uh, pulled back those statements. What else would we expect? Jesus never asked us to do anything without his divine presence and power. And the, finally, the divine affirmation. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go tell my brothers. Notice again. Go tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. And again, once more, that same, go tell. Come, come see, go tell, and there you will see me. When we are willing to obey, to obey the Lord, regardless of unanswered questions, regardless of misapprehension, uh, and, and regardless of inner struggles, we can expect his confirmation in our lives, his affirmation in our ministry. And if they hurried before, 
back in verse 8, they, they really ran at full speed at this point because they had met the Lord. They knew the truth. It had been affirmed to them unmistakably. So what? What is the personal application for us today as we think in terms of Easter Sunday? Well, let me just uh, ask a couple of questions. The first one is, do you know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior? Does Easter mean more than just a wonderful day to get together with friends, to put on a a new spring dress? Uh, You know, back in the old days, uh, the ladies used to put on their Easter bonnets, uh, over the Facebook, I saw a number of pictures, old, old uh, uh, you know, probably 30, 40, 50-year-old pictures showing how the family was dressed up, and we all used to do that. Uh, we don't do that anymore. But Easter is more than that, and it's certainly more than the Easter bunny and Easter eggs and, and egg hunt and all, all the family fun that might go with that. The real question is, are you sure in your heart of hearts that you have Jesus Christ living within. Because when we invite him in, he doesn't come in by himself. God Father, God Son, God Holy Spirit, the triune God takes up residence in our hearts. That makes us qualitatively and quantitatively different from anything else we'd ever been or ever have dreamt to be. Because eternal life is not only a quality of life that we have because it's the life of God himself in us, but it is also eternal in a sense that it never ends. It is for all eternity. So do you know the Lord Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior? Are you fully obedient to his rightful claim on your life? Because the moment I accepted Jesus, and for me that was happened to be in connection with Christmas, it was on Boxing Day, But the moment I said yes to Jesus, the moment I invited him into my heart, because I realized I was a sinner, lost, and I needed Christ to save me. And the moment that happened, the very next thought was, if it is true that Jesus died for my sins on that cross, then I owe him my life. It wasn't a question, should I serve God? It it was a question of how do I do that? Especially since I had some handicaps. I was an immigrant. I was a high school dropout. I, I was an angry young man when Jesus first met me. But he changed my heart, changed my life. And many of you can testify exactly the same thing. For some of you, it may have happened while you were a child in Sunday school or in a vacation Bible school or whatever circumstance. The important thing is not when, but whether or not Jesus came into your life. That is what you need to be important and and, and connected with this morning. If not, let me urge you, don't let this opportunity pass. Because even though we go out there now and have some hot cross buns, if you need to come to an interview with the Lord Jesus himself, I invite you to come while we sing our final song. Come to the front, have a seat, while others go out quietly and have fellowship in the hallway. I'd be happy to meet with you here and by God's grace point you to the Savior.
That's what Easter is all about, friends. And every one of us, if we have unsafe friends and loved ones and relatives, need to be busy telling them, come and see, find out for yourself, and then go tell. And you and I need to be doing that. Probably the most important verse in Scripture that all of us know by heart, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You can have that eternal life this morning, beginning here and now, and lasting for all eternity.